welcome to Justice Spoonful, the podcast that is young and fully sick. Everyone you hear speaking on this podcast is a young person living with chronic illness and or disability, including me, Caitlin Blythe. Hello. This is the 2021 season of Justice Spoonful, and I'm very happy to be here. Every other Friday, I'm putting out a new episode with a new guest, finishing up on Disabled Christmas itself, the 3rd of December, the International Day of People with Disability. Apologies for my audio quality. Uh, I know this is like such a podcast thing to do, but um, the thing is that uh, since I recorded the uh, the conversation you're about to hear, which is much better quality, my good mic has died. So I'm on my backup mic now. So that's why this sounds like this. But, you know, if you uh, bear with me, hopefully it's worth it because the conversation is great. And before I get to this episode's guest, I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is created on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. As our lockdown radiuses are opening up a little here in Narm, also known as Melbourne, and we can move a little farther out from our front doors, let's be mindful of where we stand and whose land we're standing on. And beyond mindfulness, let's work to return this and all stolen lands to their traditional custodians. Um, I was born on the land of the Uragandi people where the reef meets the rainforest and I actually grew up visiting the Daintree National Park which has this week been returned to the management of the eastern Kuku Yulanji people. Indigenous knowledge systems are the way out of the multiple climate disasters colonization has pulled us into. I extend my respect to elders past and present and to any Indigenous person listening to this podcast, sovereignty of so-called Australia was never ceded. My guest this episode is best-selling author, Aurealis Award winner, journalist, screenwriter, and assistant film curator at the Acme Museum of Screen Culture, Maria Lewis. We recorded this conversation on the 10th of December in 2020, uh, 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 almost a year ago now. Unfortunately, we talked so long, I did have to cut quite a lot out, but there are still heaps there. It's a good hour and a half, and there are lots of tangents, so hopefully you don't feel like you missed out. And I will just pop a content warning at the top of this episode, because we jump straight into talking about having a stroke, going to hospital, not being believed by doctors, all the sort of things that might trigger some people's medical trauma. I know it triggered a little bit of mine. Um, so maybe skip 10 or 20 minutes in. <laughs> yeah, we talk a lot. Maybe skip like 10 or 20 minutes in if you don't feel like that's your jam. But honestly, Maria has lots of great insights and lots of really important information about what it's like to be a stroke survivor. So I think it's worth listening to. Um, and then we get to being a fan, pop culture, we talk about what it's like to be someone who fills quotas in newsrooms and um, what the Australian film industry is going to look, li- look like um, during COVID, maybe post-COVID. And I will just mention that this was the end of 2020. So at, some, at one point we mentioned Australia being kind of like a COVID-free bubble um, because at the time it was <laughs> things were looking good. Anyway, I'll try not, let's just pretend that it's, we'll just pretend that it's, we're going back to the good times, um, that everything is fine. Um, so, 
Let's time travel now back to December 2020 and have a chat with Maria Lewis. So happy to have you here. Um, I one think- time fan, first time guest. <laughs> <laughs> Long time fan, first time having you on my podcast. So excited. Bless. You have been on my short list for so long and I have just been um, terrible at making it happen. So thank you for bearing with me. 2020 is the year we make things happen? Question mark. <laughs> That's really not what I'm going to remember this year for, I don't think. Um, Neither. But uh, I want to talk about how productive you've been uh, this year because it's oh. blowing my mind. But we will get to that because first <laughs> I want to talk about something I think we have in common, which is having being diagnosed with something that is known for elderly people having it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got a twofer here. So do you want me to start with the big one or the wee one? I don't know if you have a preference. Oh God, which one is the wee one? No, let's go. Go with the, go with the big one. Go with the big one. Okay. Well, the big one is stroke. I had um, a trans ischemic attack, TIA, uh, when I was in my early 20s. It's actually coming up to my 10-year stroke anniversary next year. Super excited oh, wow. for me. Oh, congratulations. Mm. Is that paper I- or... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I was like, is it not a hospital visit? Question mark. Um, that's that's kind of what I'm hoping. You honestly, a paper gown. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gross. A paper Sorry. gown and a fucking um. God, what is the a spinal tap? They gave me a spinal tap because originally. Anyway, look, getting Whoa. on and get into the specifics. Yeah, because they thought it was a tumor, and the way they check for a, it's not a tumor is they um uh like check to see where there's spinal fluid, um, whether you have spinal fluid. And if there is, that means there's a tumor. And if there's no spinal fluid, then you're good. But to do that, they wow. have to like extract, you know, like get in there with a needle in your spine and it's the whole vibe, but they Ooh, gave me a bunch of painkillers. We'll, put a, we'll and... put a CW right at the top of this. We will put a content <laughs> warning. <laughs> yeah, it's grim. It's grim. Um, but yeah, I had a stroke when I was uh, 20, 22, 23, and it was something that really came out of the blue for me. I was not, I was not aware of stroke. I specifically wasn't aware of the fact, I mean, like I knew that it existed obviously, but I had the perception like so many people do that stroke was something that happened to old people because stroke is not a sexy disease per se. Like it's not an easy disease to market. There's not, um, you know, you can't package this thing up and roll it out with a ribbon or an awareness day. We have an awareness week, actually. We have stroke week, uh, stroke awareness week, but it is a hard message to punch home for whatever reason, especially when you look at the stats, because stroke kills more men than prostate cancer, more women than breast cancer. But up until last year, there was there had never been any proper government funding towards stroke awareness and research, which seems so baffling. Until but- last year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until last year. And that was after like a massive campaign and a huge push and people like Chris Bath really like busting their lady balls and getting out there and really heckling politicians 
for a long time. I actually, I filmed a documentary on young stroke survivors for SBS that aired as part of the feed and part of the doco, like the central sort of narrative was young stroke survivors petitioning government officials and politicians to try and get more funding and at the end of the doco it didn't happen but then it was like a few years later it's like oh it did happen isn't that nice like oh let's just not think about how many people had to suffer in the meantime but anyway long story short I didn't have a family history of stroke um at the time I I quit drinking when I was 18 I've picked back up now but I had a full you know 11 to 12 years where I didn't drink alcohol I've never been a smoker you know didn't do drugs any of this kind of stuff and when I got brought into the hospital, um, initially it was my flatmate who took me because I had colored hair and tattoos and it was a Monday night and I was living in Newtown at the time. The, um, the nurses and the, the people who were on staff at the emergency department were like, yeah, what do you mean? She doesn't do drugs. Like, look at it. You know what I mean? Like, I fully get it. Right. I look like I would have been like totally down to clown, still do, <laughs> but it wasn't the case. And um, and so my flatmate was obviously trying to communicate this. I physically properly couldn't communicate. And it was almost a full 24 hours before they started looking at what was actually properly going on with me because my the editor uh, of the newspaper that I worked for at the time, who's a really good friend of mine, uh, we neither of us <laughs> weren't there anymore. But at the time she came in, I remember at like four in the morning, and there was a doctor, like a doctor or a nurse, I can't remember. I think it was a nurse actually, who was heckling me about, you know, just tell us how much you drink, you know, yep. just tell us what drugs you do. Just tell us about, you know, the coke because cocaine and strokes, there's a, a correlation there. Um, but like truly what riders in their twenties can afford cocaine, uh, you know, on a Monday night. like And, and Sydney rent. <laughs> I don't think so. You get to choose. I don't think so. Yeah, you move no. out to can the you- outer suburbs and that's how you can afford your coke habit. That's how this works. <laughs> Truly, truly. Do they know nothing? No. Um, and my editor um, was like, had watched this happen again and again and again. The doctor's like calling me a liar, essentially. And I am going through this. I can't probably communicate. To the point where she just like fully grabbed this nurse by the throat up against the wall and was like, listen here, you fucking bitch. <laughs> Sorry, swearing, warning, warning, warning. She's oh, like, this is a swear fucking- friendly podcast. Great. Love that. Um. She goes, listen here, you fucking bitch. I've listened to you guys ask her and yell at her and hassle her repeatedly. We work in a newsroom where everyone's a chain smoker, an alcoholic or a functioning drug addict and she's the only one who doesn't. So you better start looking at the fucking problem right fucking now. Just, um, it was the Queensland and both of us really coming out, me witnessing a biffo and her inciting one. But it ended up saving my life because they actually – started to look what for what the problem was and not in a drug way and you know we had the the spinal tap and a bunch of other tests but ended up what happening was they did an MRI and when you have a stroke the your brain activity lights up in a very specific way sometimes oftentimes they'll use uh, a type of dye that they inject you with which feels quite hot under your skin it's a really weird sensation but they use that because then when they put you through and give you a scan, they can more easily see the brain activity and see if the dye has not spread to a part of your brain. It means there's still a clot there or whatever. 
in my case, um, it, the not knowing what it was, the MRI showed that there was very unusual brain activity on the right side of my brain, which impacted would it, which would indicate a stroke on the left side of my body, which is what I had. I was not having, um, proper function on the left side of my body among with many other things. And what it ended up being was a TIA, which for those of you playing at home is a mini stroke. Um, it's a much smaller catastrophic brain injury than a regular stroke. So it makes it a lot trickier to work out what exactly has gone wrong. There's kind of two types of stroke, a blood clot or like a brain hemorrhage really. And they couldn't determine whether I had either of those because again, stroke being smaller, it's just harder to work out what that is. So you, you get left with the fun information that you're like, Hey, so we couldn't quite figure out what it is. Uh, you're probably going to have like symptoms ongoing, <laughs> which has been a real fun journey for the past decade, but also your stats of having another stroke are like dramatically increased. So that's always, that's always like a, a fun one. Sometimes like I get a lot of questions and in interviews about my work and stuff when people be like, what motivates you? Like you really seem to have a good work ethic and my work ethic is because I grew up poor, but what motivates me is because I'm like, well, I'm, you know, statistically probably going to die soon. So I'm like, you know, carpe diem, but also I, I have real limits into what I can manage from a fatigue point of view. And even from like a, just a type of disability that's not visible mm. uh, in many ways, like the fatigue is obviously a huge one, but for many years after having the stroke, I had really crippling migraines. I still do. I actually, today I ended up, <laughs> this is the second time I've had it. What a journey. Um, a type of Botox in your forehead that actually immobilizes parts of your head that give you a migraine. And it was something that was recommended to me by a male friend of mine who I met through the Stroke Foundation who had a much larger and more catastrophic stroke than I did. But he had ongoing migraines after the fact. They call it like aftershocks, they, like neurological aftershocks. It's just one of the things that happened. But my migraines would be so bad. This is not uncommon for a lot of people who have migraines. I always really hate it when people are like, oh, I have a migraine. I'm like, can you see? And are you not throwing up? Then it's not a migraine. Shut up. But for me, it was like I would lose vision. Uh, I would lose speech. I would be throwing up like my, you know, for all intents and purposes, like one or two steps away from what felt like a stroke besides the feeling of having a stroke being super specific, but all the warning signs were there. And it was something that I, you know, you're supposed to have migraines like that every one to two years. And I was having them at least once a month for nearly three years until a neurologist put me on this, this dose of, um, well, first they recommended this <laughs> specific medicine that gave me like really fucked hallucinations. Uh, no, maybe hallucinations, not the right word. Really intense nightmares that when I would wake up, I would still be hallucinating part of the nightmare. And so I started seeing like giant spiders crawling out of the roof. And I was like, you know what? I'm good. Hey, <laughs> I might just like take the risk of stroke rather than fear every night and you're not supposed mm -hmm. to go off them cold turkey but I was like fuck this shit I'm out we're not doing any more of this so I quit that medication real quick and then it was a few years later he put me onto this um specific type of aspirin that is recommended for old men with heart disease and essentially like one or two of those a day keeps the strokes away but if I can feel the symptoms of one of those really intense migraines coming on I'm allowed to take up to seven and that helps just kind of like 
dilute the pressure on my brain, um, which is which is essentially like where all the problems stem from. Anyway, that's a really long rounded way of just being like, anyway, so here's my pain. No, it's fantastic. I mean, I don't have to do anything. I, this is why you're such a great guest. I'm just, I'm just listening. Um, I got a lot to say, honestly. No, it's just nice to be able to talk about this stuff. I don't really, uh, oftentimes, like if I'm a podcast guest on something or interviewed about something, it's very rarely ever about stroke. I've become an ambassador for the Stroke Foundation after having my stroke, they were super helpful for me in terms of not just the rehab, but like really providing a lot of support. I was really going through a hard time once I got out of hospital and um, just mentally like, oh, love is me. I'm the only person at Goethe's. What a unique experience, my pain. <laughs> and they were like, hey, there's actually a whole bunch of young people who have strokes and have suffered. Would you like to come to this dinner? And I did. And I met all these other young stroke survivors and met a bunch of people from the Stroke Foundation in person who were super lovely and who I still work with to this day. Um, and genuine, like generally it's maybe if it's Stroke Awareness Week or there's somebody like when Luke Perry passed away, for incident, um, for instance, he passed away from a stroke. Um, usually it's myself and somebody like Dr. Caleb Ferguson who get wheeled out to talk about young strokes specifically because we don't represent what the stereotype is of having a stroke. So oftentimes it's like usually a few quick sound bites and you move on. Um, Whereas like getting to actually discuss, you know, what it is and how it impacts you a decade after the fact is like a really nice rare opportunity that I don't have very often. So sorry for being very verbose and wordy. (laughs) Verbose and wordy is what we're all about here at Just a Spoonful. And also I really wanted to hear exactly about that because I think for a long time, I was like, oh gosh, I would love to have Maria Lewis on the show, but it's really a show about, you know, chronic conditions. And I was like, is stroke just an acute event that happens once? But then once I thought about it for longer than five seconds and was like, you know, the, knowing the way that things usually go with uh, acute event, horrible events like that, you don't, it's not one and done. You're not just like, walking away two weeks later going, I'm fine. And I never have to worry about that again. Yeah. There's no Steve Trevor super serum that can just like fix you up immediately. Oh, I'm sorry. And I'm you're sorry. Off on your way. I'm sorry. Steve who? Uh, are we talking about Steve Rogers? <laughs> Steve Rogers. Who did I say? Steve Trevor. Fuck. Were you kind of thinking Wonder Woman and Captain America sort of? Because I've got, I've literally, you can't, this is an audio medium, but I literally have a Wonder Woman and a Captain America poster right behind me right now which I'm looking at as I fuck up my entire geek cred and just just haul me off the show god damn <laughs> I literally work in comic books and pop culture for a living oh what a faux pas but this, is, this makes me feel so good about myself because uh okay I great. talk I talk I talk about Marvel on my Twitter all the time no one wants to hear it literally no one cares what I think about it but it worked for me this one time. Um, okay, well, I'm so I'm so glad, but, and I just want to die. But um, I actually I actually was on uh, doing. I'll do a cross promo here. I was on the Pill Pop podcast recently, which is hard to say three times fast. And we actually ended up talking about um, about Captain America, about that serum, mm. about mm. the dream of having the super serum, and how that is such a uh, an aspirational wish fulfillment story for people with chronic conditions. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff about, um, I guess, well, I don't use the word wellness. I kind of hate that. I'm not quite sure oh, what the correct term it is. But so many people have ruined the world, the word wellness. 
Gwyneth. It's all Gwyneth's fault. But Gwyneth. in terms of like a certain type of wellness representation in the Captain America movies and comics specifically, um, because uh, my friend Angel Guy Fierro, who's uh, she identifies as a bionic actress, and she was um, a congenital amputee, so she was born with uh, her no arm below the elbow. And she has become like a real pioneer and activist for talking about, you know, limb difference representation in pop culture. And she often cites Captain America and Winter Soldier's examples um, and not progressive, but like examples that progress, not progressive per se, because a lot of times in pop culture, amputee characters are portrayed as the villains, like in particular Kingsman Secret Service, for whatever reason, somebody's got a bone to pick (laughs) with like people with limb differences because the first film, it's scissor legs. And then the next one, the guy who was a good guy in the first has a bionic arm, so therefore he has to be evil, and it's a whole thing. And there's this I really had weird such an issue with the scissor legs in that movie. I haven't seen the, well, the like, sequel. Don't don't see the sequel. Sequel's not no. great. There's a really great Elton John fight scene, but that's maybe all you I'll need find to the, see. It I'll for. find the YouTube clip. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just forward to that bit. But I mean, well, on that thing that you mentioned about the stroke being like an acute event and like you know Mm, this sort of maybe even a belief that it's one and done I think for many people who suffer um from chronic illness there is an inciting incident in many ways like something that happens when you're a kid or a diagnosis even that changes the way you view things and changes the way you handle living with it every day and I think for me definitely like before I had a stroke I've always had really good recall um, you know, like how they say Truman Capote had 95% recall. So he never took notes in interviews. And I'm like, did he? Cause he was always getting sued for like misquoting people. <laughs> so like, did he have 95% recall or did he just like not like, take who, notes? Cause there's no quantified paper that. Was it him? <laughs> like he was yeah, the one was saying it. Harper it. Lee being like, yeah, divide by two carry. Yeah, sounds right. Um, but <laughs> I always took notes cause like legally as a journalist, you, you have to, but I could remember things word for wait, word wait, wait, inflection. Wait. Legally, as a journalist, you have to take notes. Really? If no, you, I'm just if thinking go- some of the really bad advice I've gotten from journalists in the past. Like, don't take notes if you, because if it's important, you'll remember it. So untrue. So, so untrue. So, it's always, I did not take it. Always, I was like, I'm taking notes because I, I have a chronic illness. So it's always great to have a backup, first and foremost. Like, who doesn't want that? And, you know, yeah. you think you might remember something because it's important, but they know the shit. You know, like you're trying to remember a phone number and you're like, okay, 0404, blah, 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 blah. And there's something else happens and someone's like, six, 82. And you're like, oh, shit, you've lost the number. I think of it like that. But um, from a legal standpoint, if you go to court, uh, and I, this may have changed, but this is like when I was a police reporter coming up and a cadet and learning how to do this stuff, we had to keep, um, that's, that's why we had to learn shorthand and keep meticulous records besides a getting the fucking stories right and the names right. But if you went to court, um, digital records didn't have the same, uh, weight of proof. I think like, hmm. uh, what I'm trying to say is you could fake digital records and therefore paper records and notebooks were considered more valuable. In fact, every journalist I know still has their physical notebooks. Still. We all keep them just in case a court case comes up or something and we have to go to court. And if you have it written down in a notebook, um, it's a quantifiable piece of evidence in the way a digital piece is it. Now, 
that yeah. was a long time ago. I've been a journalist. Well, I've, you know, started out my journalism career almost 17 years ago now. So it's a long way, way in the past. I'm sure things have adapted and changed, but that was when I was starting out. It was like keep notes for that reason. Even though I could always really truly remember, let's say 95% of it. Uh, it wasn't a photographic memory, but it was like close enough or close enough that it was like very mild superpower. And then after Love I had the song. stroke, me too. <laughs> after I had the stroke, my brain didn't work the way that it used to. And that was one of the hardest things for me to reconcile with because it was just something, this ability that I always had and suddenly it wasn't there anymore. But I had to sort of reprogram my thinking about that because what it meant essentially was that I would forget really basic shit, like get milk on the way home, get a loaf of bread, be at this place by 9am. And I would find myself getting mad and upset about that because it was not my lived experience for a really long period of time. There's even a morning um, when I woke up and this was maybe a year after I'd had the stroke and I forgot how old I was. Like I genuinely could not remember my age and I knew what year I was born, but there was just a part some part missing in the connection of working out my chronological age. And I had to call my friend Bridie and be like, listen, I'm not taking the piss. I just need you to straight up tell me how old I am because I'm having a bit of a freak out right now and I can't figure it out. And she told me and I was like, oh, cool, cool, cool. Okay, cool. Right. Whatever. But I started taking notes in the same way that I would with journalism for my life. So I have to have a to-do list every day with all of the tasks that I need to complete, which I know a lot of people do, but I have to do that. Otherwise I cannot remember those things. And then the flip side of that is I have a really um, like a micro focus on very weird shit. Like if I'm walking down the street, I can remember number plates and I can remember the types of cars and the times that I saw those types of cars or, you know, an entire person's IMDb <laughs> trivia or their entire filmography, not the difference between Steve Trevor and Steve Rogers, apparently this will haunt me forever, but <laughs> stuff, stuff that is like super hyper and super specific uh, sticks with me in a way that things that an everyday person needs and are useful like birthdays and where you need to be at what time and addresses and shit just doesn't and that was really hard for me to begin with and now it's just like adapt or die yeah <laughs> uh, I have to like you know survive and thrive it's just like this is what you can do and this is your limit and the other big limit for me obviously was fatigue I've always been somebody who has needed quite a bit of sleep uh, we were talking about off air um, I got diagnosed with hemochromatosis when I was a teenager, juvenile hereditary hemochromatosis in my specific case, but for anybody who doesn't know what that means, it's called like an old man's disease. Yes. Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, that, that's the, the, the sort of mini condition that's that you were talking one. about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause truly hemochromatosis is very manageable and quite easy to live with. It's like, it means you have too much iron in your bloodstream naturally. And because your body has no way to get rid of iron, what happens is it stores on your vital, uh, vital organs, usually your kidneys, and then your organs shut down and you die, which sounds super dramatic, but it's because I said it in a 10 second like spiel. Usually that happens over the course of a really long period of time. And so there's lots of other symptoms and you can usually like nip it in the bud in one way or the other. And where, because you, there's like four types if you get diagnosed at birth, that's the worst type. 
Second worst type is when you get diagnosed as a teen, which I did. Third worst type is usually like middle age or like for women, uh, just as they've started menopause because they're not losing blood monthly. That's the only way you can get rid of iron is by bloodletting. And uh, the fourth way is is older men in the most common way. And what it meant is just that, you know, for the first two years after my diagnosis, I had to have uh, two pints of blood uh, taken every six months. And then after that two year period, my iron levels had leveled out. We were all good. I also like was a really late bloomer. So if I had gotten my period at like 11 or 12 or something, that would have probably, I wouldn't have had symptoms until I was much older anyway, but I didn't get my period into much later. And so those things started compounding the little things, the little symptoms that indicate there's a bigger issue. And, um, then it's just like, you just have to have your iron levels checked every now and again, you have to not just only subside on red meat, which is never an issue for me anyway. I was always like a big fish eater and eat a lot of seafood and chicken and a lot of white meats and stuff like that. Um, and it is just one of those things we fatigue is part of that now compiled with the stroke. Um, it makes it tricky. And I just have to say no to a lot of shit sometimes that people, Uh, I mean, you know, like it's really hard to explain to people like I I, I physically can't do a thing the way that I used to. And I physically can't do a thing in terms of events and like pop culture conventions and stuff like that. I absolutely love doing them. It's like going to summer camp and hanging out with all your professional mates and, you know, getting to meet readers and people who give a shit about your work when there was such a long period of time when you just, all you ever wanted was for somebody else to care. And now there's a bunch of people who care and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is real. But then at the same time, I, at the end of the day, I am wiped, like genuinely wiped and not the kind of wiped where it's like, you can synthetically fix it, like pop a pill or pop or whatever, and just keep going. It's like, I have to have a big hard reset. It's the only way I can function. I have limits that I didn't have before and knowing them and navigating around them is, is very key, but it's also sometimes, um, you know, when people come up I have a novel series, with uh fuck how many books in it now six um and see stuff like that you should be able to remember that straight away I'm like wait how many do I have there Um, are a lot (laughs) of books though it's a lot of books (laughs) and there's a lot of shit and you have people that are like want to talk to you about a specific thing you work on a show and then they're a fan because of the show or they're a fan because of you know whatever um but in the case like it's fresh in their mind and they're coming to you and they want to maybe hash out a specific detail with you and you're like kind of are you like deer in the headlights? Sometimes, honestly, it really depends because the books have been coming out for a long time now. I there are, I have like regular readers and people that have really been there from the beginning in a way that I'm so fucking lucky and so fucking blessed and probably the only reason I can keep lights on um, in my apartment and pay for Wi-Fi and, you know, all that kind of shit, hot water. You know, they're just the bare base utilities, things that you worry about as an adult when you're not from a rich family and have like parental support to fall back on or an heiress or whatever, you know, just girly things. Um, but often I can't, I can't relate. I'm an heiress personally. <laughs> I knew that about you. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> big, the big Australian heiress. That's the word on the Twitter streets. When I, I had to do this post on social media a few years back, because there had just been, a, there'd been a few sort of like 
not incidences, that makes it sound so extreme, but just a few occasions where people would be like, oh my God, blah, 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 about like reel off a bunch of things. Like, don't you remember? And I would be like, no, sorry, I don't. And then they would get really upset or in some cases people would get really aggressive um, Mm, about me not remembering a specific thing. And it's not like, oh my God, I have so many fans or shit like that. It's more that my brain cannot retain information like that. And in that, I, in that specific volume and especially like if it's months have passed or years have passed and also with names sometimes like I just always am stressed out about spelling people's names wrong in a book that you're physically signing for them and if you think there's one way to Sarah to spell Sarah let me tell you there are actually 50 and I've probably spelled them all so I'm always like just trying to check, even if it's somebody that I've known for a while. I'm like, listen, I know this sounds fucking crazy, but can you just spell your name out for me again, letter by letter? Because I just can't, my brain just can't hold on to that information and it can't hold on to all those encounters sometimes and just all yeah. of all of those things that a normal brain could. And so I remembered like I just did to do a little Instagram post about it. And I was like, if you come up and we have a great chat or whatever, and you mentioned something specific and I can't remember it, please don't be offended. It's not personal. It's just that I just cannot retain information that way. But speaking of being a fan of things, you're a big fan of Mariah Carey. Oh my God. And like, it is, is going. Where is this going? That's great. I was just I was like, like, fuck, what does she know? I'm just going to ramp it know? up a bit more. <laughs> um, it is currently, because it's December, it's currently Mariah Carey's mm. season. Mm. It is. How are you feeling? Great. I love this moment as a Mariah Carey fan. It's a good it feels. It is, not just because she's the queen of Christmas, but it feels like Mariah specifically is having has reached a particular pop cultural status not related to christmas but related to the reception of her biography the meaning of mariah carey um and the themes and the stuff that she talks about and her candor and how open she is discussing trauma and abuse and race and sexism and just in a, in a way that I think for a lot of people in the Lambly, Lamb family, that's what we call ourselves, Mariah Carey fans, we weren't sure that if she was ever going to talk about outside of the context of her music because it is super personal and she's like a pretty private person, even though it's like the perception is, oh, but she wears short skirts and has big tits, therefore you must be a public person. And I'm like, what? But, you know, that's that's just inherent, you know, slut-shaming. It really infiltrates all levels of society and pop culture. But... Mariah Carey has reached this point now where, you know, I went on an ABC show and talked about Mariah Carey for an hour. Stop everything. I I listened. I I was like, I know you stop. And I was like, oh, actually, no, that's the show. Yeah. But (laughs) what was so funny about that was like, I know the amount of times ABC had played Mariah Carey because one of them was dedicated to me from my friend Howe, who runs the hip, Triple J hip hop show. And then the other time was like, I had been doing some work in ABC and had gone back through the records. I'd be like, when was the last time they played Mariah Carey? So it's just like a place that had played her maybe twice in the past decade. And then suddenly we're getting to discuss her for an hour. And that was like a really micro way to look at the macro impact that she's had, you know, that, People who used to tease me in high school and primary school for being a Mariah Carey fan. We had some tough years 
and the glitter and charm bracelet years were tough. Um, those people and they're like, wow, this biography was like so enlightening or this is such an interesting thing she had to say about this. So I never valued her as a writer or producer or whatever. Like, you know, real ones, no. You know, like mm. <laughs> Mariah, we'd be no Mariah Carey's a legend um, and incredibly artistically gifted but also very um, intuitive about trends and about where pop culture is moving. I mean, if you just look at Glitter, the semi-autobiographical film that came out on September 11, 2001. So, oh, terrible date, terrible timing. Oh, Makes- is that? Okay, all right. Because I didn't watch it till years later and yes. well after it had fallen out of the sort of um, cultural front of mind. And I remember seeing it on TV and thinking, hey, this is a really good movie. Why did I never know about this movie? That's why, that must be why. That's, it's one <laughs> of the many reasons. Other things were happening. <laughs> There was also a big campaign from her abusive ex-husband to try and bury the film and to, you know, <sighs> there is, it's a lot, lot of different factors, right, coming into play. But definitely a film coming out on September 11 is not a great one, um, especially when they're like the, it's one of the last films where you can see uh, the, the World Trade Center like visibly in the film. And there is this image that, I don't like it's it doesn't really ever circulate, but it's just one of those things that Mariah Carey fans are it. But of the World Trade Center's towers burning in the background and in the foreground is a Mariah Carey billboard. And that's just like, you know, it Ooh. tells you everything. You know, it says everything that needs to be said. But Glitter in many ways is just like a star is born, but like enjoyable. And when she was developing that film, she wanted Terrence Howard to play the lead role, the romantic lead role uh, of the male character. And the studio were like, oh, well, you know, you're mixed race and, you know, he's black and that seems a bit wacky. Like we can't have too much of that. That's crazy. And so they cast with somebody else, Max Dice. <laughs> so they that character that they uh, they put in there instead. And Mariah Carey was ahead of the curve. You know, this was before Hustle and Flow, before the Oscar noms and before Terrence Howard became a really sort of, acclaimed performer is by all accounts a difficult person uh to work with and henceforth why you know John Cheadle gets um recast as Rhodes and Iron Man movies and MCU going forward but um he's somebody who has a lot of talent and has a lot of skill as a performer and she picked that really early on. She has a really good eye for stuff like that. It's her kind of ear as well and her ability to set trends and anticipate them, which is one of the reasons that rap features in popular music and pop music in general exists because ODB popped up on fantasy and because Mariah, you know, worked with people like Missy Elliott and Puff Daddy and Jay-Z and Ja Rule and legitimized the merging of genres, like merging hip hop with pop and merging R&B with pop in a way that seems like that's just music now, Mm. but that wasn't how it was. And a big part of that is because of, Mariah Carey anticipating that, making it happen, but writing her own music and producing it and um, just being real smart. Love a mm. smart broad. <laughs> I can relate to this so hard because uh, and obviously there's a lot of differences between them, but Taylor Swift is like a big figure in my life and um, she's my best friend. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't know her. <laughs> 
imagine if this is when I decided to reveal casually that Taylor Swift is my friend. Um, yeah, there's just one of the cats pops out from behind you. And oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm just, that makes uh, sense. I'm just looking after her cats for the weekend. It's no big deal. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, this is something we have in common, actually, is that I've been on the ABC show Stop Everything to talk about Taylor Swift. And ah. I'm the, and, I'm the reason Taylor Swift has been played on Radio National. <laughs> yes. I love this for us. We're like pushing our own agendas. But like, it's like, I mean, I think Mariah probably deserves like, like more of, uh, she's been more of an underdog, I think. But like with Taylor Swift, it's a bit like, wait, why am I caping for this millionaire? <laughs> anyway, um, but I love her and there's a lot of similarities between them. They've off, they're, they're both like unashamedly feminine have been sort of written off as divas and written off for that reason. I think there's a lot of misogyny uh, come their way. And um, uh, like big, big titans of the industry that sort of kind of never quite get the credit they're due, even though they work so hard. Like you were saying, Mariah's writing her own music and producing and she's setting trends. She's predicting trends. Yeah. This is a more lot number of, like, one hits than Elvis. You know, she is more blows. number one hits than any female artist in history. You know, that's like, that's it's pretty crazy. She's at 21 and I can't remember who the nearest woman is, but I feel like it's Rihanna it's- maybe at 14 or 15. Wow. number one hits and that's wow. like still you know it's it's quite a way Mariah Carey's not over yet either too no that's like, the other thing yeah she's like it's it's funny that you can still you can compare her to Taylor as contemporaries because Mariah is still fucking going and what was it mm. like the stat is like she's had number one hits across four across four decades four decades yeah because her debut album, Mariah Carey, came out, uh, I want to say it was 1990, but the, the lead singles, the four lead singles were all out 1989. So she just got in there, pipped the post. So you have 80s, then you have 90s, which you obviously really dominated, 2000s and then 2000s and ten, 2010s. And now we're into this new decade and um, All I Want for Christmas went number one on US Billboard, but so did I love that. O Santa with the remix that oh sandra is um christmas song that she did but there's a remix of it with jennifer hudson and ariana grande that is from her apple plus um christmas special which is like super enjoyable really fun billy eichner plays an elf that midler's in it for five minutes like snoop dogg and jermaine dupree pop up which is super satisfying for like old school mc fans um <laughs> Millie Bobby Brown's in it for two sex. Like it's a full on ride, man. Like the people that pop up in it, you just like anybody will show up for Mariah, like truly anybody. But there's, there's stuff like that that happens all the time. Like glitter um, recharted. <laughs> the, the Mariah Carey fans got glitter, the original soundtrack, which I think is actually super great. I always loved the glitter soundtrack more. I liked the movie. I've always liked the movie and I love it for what it represents, but I'd always love the glitter soundtrack because it mixed funk and disco and rap and pop in a really interesting and exciting way. And like lover boys, obviously, you know, lead single and great song, but there was just like, um, you know, her covers of last night, a DJ saved my life and don't, don't stop funkin' for Jamaica and stuff like that. But they made that album number one on the US Billboard charts like 18 years after the fact. And just, they'll just pick a project. Like I feel like Charm Bracelet's next. I think it's maybe one of her most <laughs> underappreciated albums and just an absolute, just 
truly like honestly top to bottom it's like you don't get emancipation and mimi without charm bracelet but charm mm-hmm. bracelet is like truly a perfect album beginning to finish and i'm not like a evangelicist evangelist yeah i feel like i said that right what i don't know i'm not good with words but um she says as a writer but um, <laughs> it's only I'm your not- whole job but <laughs> yeah it's my whole job i'm not evangelical shall i say about that there are mariah carey albums where there's five good songs and then there are ones where all of the singles slap but then there's a lot of like filler less killer and then there are ones like charm bracelet like butterfly you know that are perfect start to finish where there is no skips as the kids say um they do so it has (laughs) they do say that so yeah she said even like caution which was her last album that came out in 2018 was the most critically acclaimed album of her career. That's wow. wild. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. It was that to, for that to come into your, you know, she's in a, if she's just turned 50 or is about yeah. to turn 50. I, think she just, to I, I looked it up today and she's 50, man. She's 50. Yeah. And the fact that comes at 48, her most critically acclaimed album of her career, also her tightest album. It's like 10 tracks. Like that's super super tight super nifty very interesting to me I'm very fascinated by Mariah Carey big time fan yes and this is so relatable to me because um Taylor Swift is still going she's just had one of her most well-received albums ever and she just wrote it in three months and dropped it surprise drop um she didn't have to do that she was still promoting well should have still been promoting her last album which only came out um last year it's been a wild couple of years for Swifties um but it's just so interesting because there be, is such a long time. It still is kind of embarrassing to be a Taylor Swift fan, like openly, you know, like um, you get a lot of judgment for it. I, I was actually at my local, this is going to sound really bougie and it's true. My local ice cream joint. Uh, <laughs> I go down to my local ice cream place. And, head, um, off to your milk, head off to your local milk bar and get a, <laughs> you know, creaming soda or whatever. And I'm wearing my folklore shirt. And I walk in and, and the, the woman selling ice cream is like, oh, like notices my shirt. And I'm just like a little abashed. And she's like, no, no, I like Taylor Swift. I'm like, oh, I'm like best album of the year. And she's like, yeah, it seriously was. And then I just, because I don't get out of my apartment enough, I just started monologuing, like cataloging what Taylor Swift shirts I own. (laughs) Cause I'm just like, I'm talking to a human. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I got a, I found a 1989, a friend found a 1989 tour shirt in an op shop. So I've got one of those. Can't find any red shirts. And she was like, I know, right? And I was like, ugh, someone who gets it. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's extremely, I love that it's accessible for you. Like being a Mariah Carey fan between tours to Australia, it was 1996, the Butterfly Tour. And then she didn't come out again until um memoirs of an imperfect angel maybe or it might have been i am mariah the elusive chanteuse long album title a lot of ellipses in there but it was like the 2010s like it was it it was a really long time between drinks so there was like no merch to be had like it just couldn't be found you know so i remember when she came out to australia and i went and saw her twice for the first time i was just like buy yen everything and now there's etsy and there's places where you can get really cool homemade merch or custom fan merch i have a jacket that says um 
Mariah Don't Carry. And it's like not official yes. Mariah merch, but it's like super dope. There's lots of cool stuff like that now. But I yeah. remember, you know, being a fan growing up in the 2000s, it's just like trying to get any Mariah Carey thing. But get it. It was impossible. I had a friend who used to work at Sanity who got me the um, Mariah Carey Emancipation of Mimi poster that they had up for promotion because it was the highest selling album of, you know, 2005. So I had that on my wall for years and it was like, oh, you didn't even know where you could get a Mariah Carey poster if it wasn't for fucking a mate working at Sanity. I used to live for that shit when I was a teenager. I was all about hanging out at the local video rental or music shop and just waiting until they were done with posters and things and just being like, I think I stole I stole a John Mayer poster once in Perth. <laughs> John Mayer Vol. I, I mean, Good oh, Lord. I know. Look, we all have our dark pasts. I was a really big John Mayer <laughs> stan until 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 I met him. Oh no, <laughs> that'll was, do it. He was that'll dreadful. He's such an asshole. Yeah. And you know, yeah, Jessica when, once Simpson you, knows. Yeah, right. This was before that, I think. But like once you realize he's an asshole, you go back and listen to everything from like his first single on and you're like, oh, it was always there. He's always yeah. been like this yeah, towards yeah, women. Yeah. Like, it's just that when he was like young and cute and fresh, we were all like, oh, he plays the guitar so nicely and you can kind of let it slide. And also you're 18, you don't know any better. And um, and now I'm like a 34 grizzled year old person. And I'm just like, he's awful. And oh, to be 18 and not know any better. Ah, oh, the no, days. I would not go back. I would not go back. <laughs> I want to know no, better. Neither, neither, <laughs> neither. Honestly, oh, no better, do better is kind of like a big mantra for me. And I like take that with me in regards to not just personal stuff, like personal life and relationships and connections and all that kind of stuff, but professionally. Oh, my God contracts and things are signed and negotiated at 25 it's just like I was fucking 25 how was I supposed to know better how was I supposed to do better because I didn't know better and you know you got to have better representation and better people in your corner and importantly people have the same morals and ethics as you do people who want to fight for the things that you think are important oftentimes for me it's like representation not just in front of the camera but behind it as well and that just doesn't mean like hiring people of color and hiring women of color. It means have we got queer people on set? Have we got people of different abilities on set? Have we got people from different backgrounds? Like just all that kind of stuff that seems really simple and has become uh, more integrated into the US system and the UK system that in Australia is still like bashing your head against a fucking concrete wall sometimes like it's just shit that you're just like this is especially now what's interesting with there's so much shit shooting here in Australia um I'm very interested to see what happens and see how our industry evolves because I was kind of like this is this would be such a classic Australian thing of our film industry just failing upwards like New Zealand invested in a guy who's like I make movies about puppets who fuck each other. And they're like, dope. You've got a unique creative vision. Here's some money. And like, we'll give Jane Campion some money and Lee Tomohora some money. And like, they're supporting lots of different types of filmmakers and women and Maori filmmakers and people who are making genre. And then, you know, you have an entire industry out there with, you know, James Cameron has dual citizenship and shit because everybody wants to make movies out there and they have an, incredibly upskilled industry here and we have incredibly talented crews and stuff here but 
sometimes from an infrastructure point of view, it's very frustrating. And now with the pandemic and our geography and Australia and New Zealand both being kind of mutually exclusive COVID-free bubbles, everything's coming here to shoot and we have great sound stages and great facilities and whatever. But I am really interested to see what happens in five, 10 years because all the studios are booked for like five, 10, five to seven years. So in 10 years time, when Australia has become like this sort of Southern hemisphere wood <laughs> or whatever, um, I really wonder if this will be the moment we look back and be like, well, this was the thing that forced the Australian industry to stop being so sort of stick in their mud about things like that, about diversity clauses and shit, you know, like just do you, do even you feel like, agreement. do you feel like US and UK people shooting here is going to import some of that progressive diversity initiative or is that what you mean yes because we have diverse talent here we have yes. diverse like creators and creatives and like you know fucking diverse grips and diverse actors and diverse producers and writers but the infrastructure to support those people is very specific and not wide sweeping it's like the amount of times I know that I've been hired and this is, I'm just making it specific to me because I can't talk to everybody's unique experience, right? So I'm not like trying to exclude people. I'm talking about my specific experience because I can like talk shit about it. <laughs> but the amount of times that I've been hired in writer's rooms because I'm a woman and because I, they're like, oh, she's kind of like the whitest brown person we know. You know, she's ethnically ambiguous. There's a little bit of something, something. And like, oh, she's got a body ratio like a Dorito. She might be queer. She might know. Yeah, fucking, we could tick like three or four boxes if we just throw her in there. Oh, she had a stroke. Brilliant. Boom. Just like, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And you yeah. know what? Like, you got to get paid, baby. You got to pay those bills. And yeah. the way the industry works is you get your next job based on your last job. And so now I'm at the point where I've had enough television writing gigs and worked in development and enough rooms and made enough good contacts that I'm getting to stand up on my voice alone and stand up on my ideas and concepts alone. And predominantly most of my work is out of the U S now and that's really exciting to me, but also really scary because so far I've just been like, I have obviously like I have a literary agent for my books and my comic book stuff. Um, but up until then, it's I've been mainly negotiating my own contracts for film and television uh, because writers' rooms is a specific thing and staff writing is a specific thing. In Australia, it's specific and industry specific. But because I'm doing more work in the US, it's like, oh, fuck, I have to get like a US agent and like, even just the way you get paid out of the U S is like different and scary and just like big girl shit. <laughs> I'm sure there's a better word for it, but I'm always like, Oh, big girl shit. Like, Whoa, fuck. That's really terrifying. And like, I have to go meet with a fucking, like I pitched this. Um, I shot this pilot this year in 2020 that I, I didn't shoot it. We had an amazing director on it. It was incredibly talented. No, you held so the like camera and like, just no. <laughs> I actually I didn't because I like the borders were closed but I it was something that I <laughs> co-wrote and co-created and I'm, try I'm trying was... to boost your promo here by just okay you know, cool, cool, cool. making sorry, big sorry. I'm like, nah, 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 nah. I've got limited <laughs> skill set anyway whatever but um I had pitched it to a network in the US and got a meeting about it and was super excited and then um had the meeting and they were like well you know we like it but 
we actually like like the script more and we're like more interested in talking to you about your voice like we don't think we can buy this specific pilot and I was like oh fuck and then the next line was like but we want to work with you and your voice and like your like perception on things I was like oh fuck <laughs> and then they're like so can you come and pitch in the new year like pitch a show to them in the new year and I'm like out loud like yes of course and then in my head I'm like ah fuck like gosh shit Christ fuck like my god just a, a you know very ugh, just the stakes are extremely high at the moment and in a weird way 2020 has been so terrible universally and globally and for whatever reason all of like the things that I've been working towards for the past 16, 17 years, we've all started to pay professional dividends around this time. And it's also, you know, if you can't physically shoot things, a lot of companies are like, well, let's work on development. Like development's a thing that takes time and isn't restricted geographically. All of the writers rooms that I've been in in 2020 have been digital, which firstly I fucking love because <laughs> it means like, I don't know. I don't know if it's something because just like people are just getting straight to the good crack and you're like getting fucking into it straight away. But there's no like icebreaker exercises or like, let's all put our feelings up on a post-it note on the wall. It's like, no, okay. So let's like make some bottle lips and have a season arc and like come up with some, you know, fucking flesh out some supporting characters or whatever. And it just feels way more productive. And for me, it's great because I don't have to leave home. (laughs) Like a writer's Zoom is great. And I can make a cup of tea and then I can go and have a pee and like come back. And it's just like, it's getting to do the thing you love in your personal environment in a way that I find super rewarding. And I don't know if that's a universal experience. I would ex- assume that it's not. I would assume that like a lot of creative creatives have found 2020 really challenging for those reasons. But I think also even from a, you know, to tie into the whole theme of disability from a fatigue <laughs> perspective, not having to physically travel, not having to do physical events. This year has forced me to sit back and reflect and in some ways take the break I've never been brave enough to take and Mm. address my limits, you know, to know that I can't do X amount of pop culture conventions and book tours and just can't slam that shit back to back and expect that you're going to be okay and that your body's going to be okay and that your mind's going to be okay because it's, it's not so there has been obviously so many terrible things that have happened this year. And then there has been a lot of things that have made me go, huh, you know, like a lot of sort of, I think a lot of people have had those reflective moments in different ways. I started therapy this year. You know, that was a huge thing for me. You picked (laughs) a a year for it. Like, (laughs) yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) I've been in, how's the timing? (laughs) It's, it's been a wild year. Cause like, yeah you know sometimes I'll feel like god I've done nothing this year and then I'm like well I've been in weekly therapy literally through a pandemic so can we just say that I've done some shit like yeah take a moment to like fucking pop your metaphorical champers or whatever is your version of champers and just like go down to the ice cream shop yeah yeah get get your cream and soda (laughs) (laughs) What's your McDonald's order? What's your go-to? Oh, um, actually, I'll tell you what. It is uh, three to four hash browns. Um, mm, and I have a I place. respect that. Oh, thank you. Um, I, there's like a few Maccas around me because um, I'm just blessed. Um, and so I have one that <laughs> I know that they do the freshest hash browns. 
Um, and then I get a large frozen Coke. Oh my God. That's an unconventional order. You really took me on a ride. I didn't know where <laughs> it was going. I didn't know what was coming next, but I, I feel like that is my horoscope. Well, you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. people always like, oh, what star sign are you? I'm like, what's your Macca's order? That it's tells really me great. more Capricorn shit about you than, you know, that I would be able to process. That's well, can, a very interesting order. Can you tell what my horoscope is just from that? No, fuck no. I wouldn't know. Oh, I was like, that's going to be interesting. Um, well, I'm a Gemini. What is your horoscope? I'm a Gemini. A Gemini. Okay. So unpredictable, cool. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I only know the ones that pertain like, to me, really. <laughs> I feel like I'm a pretty predictable person. So whenever the Gemini stuff is like, oh, they're so unpredictable, they're two-sided, and they always want to have sex with everybody. And I'm like, what about the Geminis <laughs> who just like reading? <laughs> I like the version of the horoscope you read where they're like, Geminis, big sluts. Anyway, <laughs> big two-faced sluts, Capricorns, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Are you on the cusp though? Maybe that means you have more traits of the one that you're a little bit closer to. I might be, I might be, I'm not, I don't think I'm a cusper, but isn't that a great word? Cusp. Cusper. Well, I am a cusper and it's like one of those things that really fucking frustrates me because I feel like so much of my life, I'm not just one. Like I never get to be one thing. I'm <laughs> always like, like in between a buy something. And I was like, God, do I, can't I just be a fucking Scorpio or a fucking Libra? I'm like, my birthday is October 24th. So by some measures, I'm literally a Scorpio by five minutes. By others, I'm a Libra. Like it really depends on like the date shift is either like October 23rd or October 25th or October 24th. So it really is like straddling the line. And I was like, oh man, this is just so indicative of my life. I don't just don't get to be like one thing, like straighty 180, but you know. That's well, that's that's the good that's the ongoing theme. That's the arc. <laughs> it ties really well into talking about the fact that you write paranormal fiction. Where yes. what I really like about your books is that it's supernatural happening in the real world. So it's a world that I recognize. Mm. There's streets that I know, there's suburbs that I know. I'm getting uh, you know, there's sort of the rules of the world are sort of my world, but also banshees are real werewolves are real and they're out there there's wombat shapeshifters running pubs <laughs> which is i just i read the wailing woman last literally last night oh my god shazza and dazza <laughs> so good so good um spin-offs are not supposed to be this good it is a really <laughs> enjoyable book like i i read who's afraid like you know years ago and i i was like um this is the latest one out. I'll go, go, I'll go read this one. And now I'm just, now I want everything to be about Sadie Burke. So what am I supposed to you do? You know, now? it's so, it's so funny is I think people, or maybe I don't want to say, I think people, I don't, I don't know, but the perception I get is maybe that people like the spinoffs more and, and it's not so much a spinoff per se as it's like, this is all part of the same series and it's called the supernatural sisters series. And so each book focuses on a different character and oftentimes a different place. So the first book who's afraid uh, was focused on a biracial werewolf called Tommy Grayson, who's Scottish and Maori. And it's sort of a really great vessel for the audience because she's getting exposed to this world at the same time they are. And it's a really great introductory book, but the other books from there have been things like the wailing woman where, you know, the main character is a banshee and is, uh, is somebody who has a 
has grown up in the supernatural world and always known that she is supernatural and known the rules and the conventions and the whatever and is a character who communicates through Auslan predominantly through most of the book and so do the characters around her and it's an Australian focus rather than a Scottish New Zealand focus and The Witch Who Caught a Death is you know a character who's a transradial amputee and a bisexual woman who just so happens to control the dead and the Rose Daughter, which is coming out, fuck, April 2021, is a, another pivot again. And it's been so rewarding to get to write books that I get to make the rules, right? The world rules are the same universally across the stories. But each time I get to tell stories about different types of women. And it started with me writing Tommy because... I felt like I didn't get to see a character like her portrayed in popular culture. I love urban fantasy as a genre and paranormal fiction as a genre. They're the same thing basically, but you know, choose your poison. People like one term of the other, but like people like Charlene Harris and Rochelle Mead and Kelly Armstrong and, you know, Octavia Butler in a way for sure. There's just so many people who do it so well and so many women in particular always wanted to play in that world, but character like Tommy who starts out kind of as a villain like her journey is like she's not the hero she starts out as a bad guy and somebody who goes on a journey that her solo journey really kind of gets wrapped up in who's still afraid which came out just a month ago and who she pops up in all the other books and so do Casper from The Witch Who Caught a Death and the characters from that and so does Sadie and so does Tommy popping up in Sadie's stories and there's all this crossover and connection but the joy of it is I get to tell stories about women who are teens, women who are in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s, women of different ethnicities and backgrounds and abilities and belief systems and sexualities and I get to do it through the vessel of characters that oftentimes are stereotypically men, like mm. conventional monsters that are men. Female werewolves are a very specific thing. Most of time, most of the time it's um, oh man, he's cast, he's cast. And it's like, you know, who's gonna understand gore and turning into a monster a few days a month more than women? And even banshees, you know, the the, the idea of like these tortured women who are the vessel for trauma and perceptions of death and just like being able to take a feminist lens to a lot of those classic sort of tales and just kind of subvert them in a way but also pay homage to them at the same time has been super satisfying and rewarding and has been amazing because it's helped me get to where I am where I get to do a lot of different interesting things in my career that I wouldn't have gotten to that level I think um if if the books hadn't connected with people but also if I hadn't been able to continually expand the world with different women I don't know if the series would have the legs that it has if I just got to stay with Tommy in fact I would argue that it wouldn't uh maybe my publisher thinks differently because when I first pitched when I first like sold um my first two book deal I pitched who's afraid and I pitched the witch who caught a death and they were like who's afraid like you know okay biracial heroine who's a villain like that's pretty quote unquote edgy and then they're like oh like a bisexual amputee like medium and a witch like oh you know it was just like a one step too far for them at the time and then you know you have um 
you have Mad Max Fury Road come out where the main protagonist is somebody like Furiosa who really becomes like pop culturally very significant. And there's just a few other examples for them commercially where things that seemed risky back Mm. in 2014 don't seem as risky in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, et cetera, et cetera. And because of that, because I've been able to write different types of characters and worlds and just different types of women the audience has expanded as well and more women have been able to see themselves represented rather than just people feeling like they got to see themselves represented through Tommy or not represented through Tommy and then they get to see themselves represented through Sadie or through Casper or you know through Dreckley Jones who's the main character from The Rose Daughter or you know Kaya Craig and it came from the deep and that I think maybe has been perhaps the most satisfying thing about it I don't know I'm very very weird like contemplative about it because the series wraps up next year oh Um, no yeah I mean in a good way like eight books that's pretty fucking good run I just I know a lot of you would just keep doing this forever like you know how there are people who do that (laughs) yeah Laurel K Hamilton the first um oh god what is the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter book came out in 1989 and she has had one of those books come out every single year since. And there's what? been a few spin-offs and graphic novels. Right. But that's, you that's know, every year Taylor Swift has been alive. Yo, if you're an Anita Blake fan or a Laurel K. Hamilton fan, honestly, I tapped out book eight once we got to like a parrot orgy. I'm like, you know what? I think I'm good. A wear <laughs> parrot orgy, I should say, not just like a straight up parrot orgy. Or to, you know, those books really broke ground for a lot of things like Buffy and a lot of other types of mainstream urban fantasy. But you know, every year you're going to have one of those books, and it's really hard to keep upping the stakes. Yeah. And it's gotten to the point where I had this conversation with my editor at Little Brown, who I'm so lucky. All of the books have been with the same publishers in the UK the whole way through, and I've had the same editor the whole way through. And I get on so well with her and she has a really great eye for stuff. And so that's been really like wonderful creatively. There've been a lot of other challenges, but they're not really creative challenges. It's more just like the way the industry works on a local level and just dealing, you know, not having full control, artistic control over certain choices and decisions. And you're like, okay, this is a thing. You get that whole thing of like, no better, do better, no better for next time, blah, blah, blah. But um, a lot of series don't a get to finish and b get to finish on people's own terms and so we were having that conversation about you know getting up to the stage the next book will be due she's like what are you thinking and I'm like I'm thinking I'm ready to fucking wrap it up hey and she's like oh really oh I mean yeah like if you if you want to I guess and I never saw this as being an indefinite thing going on forever it's I'm it sounds so weird because I love these characters and I love this world, but I also just love the readers so much. The people who've connected with it, like fucking people who have gotten tattoos on their bodies from uh, of characters and quotes and images from this series. People who have done street art based on stuff from the series, you know, people who have done <laughs> crochet and knitwork and made dolls and just like shit that you could just, like baby me would have just absolutely fucking salivated about anybody else caring as much as I did. And these people care more in so many ways, because that's the thing with art, you make it and you create it and then you put it out in the world and it doesn't own to you. It doesn't belong to you anymore. Like you don't own it anymore. It 
belongs to the audience. They pick it up, they take it, they do with it what they will. Um, it's like raising a child and then fucking booting them out of the house and just like hoping that they don't join a gang. Or maybe they do join a gang and it's like a dope gang and it's a girl gang and you all have like awesome butterfly knives or something. But the point is <laughs> I feel very fortunate that I get to wrap it up and I get to wrap it up with all of the women coming together, which is like the natural progression of how that works and the monsters and the cause and the goal and the themes. But just also a little like, because I, I don't get to have this tingly feeling yet because it won't happen yet, but like, in 2020, I won't have a book to deliver. Like, yeah. That's so exciting. <laughs> it's really exciting to me. Is that like I won't I won't have a book to deliver. Like I'm really, I don't know if I could have sustained it forever, having a book to deliver every year. But it's it's also never just one thing. It's like you have lots of other different projects or whatever. And I have like I have a book to deliver, a graphic novel to deliver a TV series to deliver, a script to deliver all within like the next three months of like next year. Right. But just the, just the knowledge that like so much stuff that you start on in this industry, you never get to see through to the end. Yeah. And getting to start something and finish it is going to be really nice. And I'm personally just having, just selfishly having just read the Wailing Woman and being really invested in where that's going. And I'm really excited for the next book because when I met that character directly, I was like, oh, I want to know everything about yeah. you. <laughs> you know what's so funny is because all of the all of the books that have, you know, spin-off books or whatever you want to call them, but like each time we have a new character be the main character of that story. Um, it's so funny. Usually I haven't announced what that character is. And in this case, it's a little bit different because like, <laughs> the jig is up you know the rose daughter will be the fucking seventh book in the series so people know that whatever the next book is that's coming it's usually a character that you've a met before and b met in somebody else's adventure but oftentimes right. people can pick what that character is going to be like casper was always that character for me like i was so excited to write her and write her world and when i wrote her into early early scenes in who's afraid and who's afraid too I was like, fuck yeah, can't wait to expand on this later. But people were like, oh man, that Casper chick. And she was like in one scene, <laughs> like literally one scene in the same way, directly is in one scene in The Wailing Woman. And that's the thing, like people just knew, like they're just like whatever the thing was that attracted me to that character was a thing that attracted other people in the same way. And it was like, there were characters, um, obviously, that like Heath, for instance, is a character who pops up in all of the books consistently. He runs through all of them. He's and the other characters. He's the Scottish Nick Fury, right? <laughs> yeah. He shows oh up in God. the end credits and he's like, I have Scottish. a. <laughs> he's like, no, I can't do the accent. I was going to try, but no, he's, he's like, I have a ah, your ball bag. You. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's crazy too. It's like, because I'm very. I'm very like primary source orientated with my research and very research heavy in general, journalism background, right? I care about that stuff. Um, but the, with obviously with who's afraid when I was going through, I researched really, I'm not from Scotland, um, but I, you know, lived over there for a wee bit to research the book and had researched heavily the language and specifically the language of 20 somethings from Dundee, which is a specific mm 
verse and just like little ticks and traits and things like that. And um, the amount of slang that you pick up that really bleeds through into your everyday life, like things like Egypt or boar bag or Bampot and stuff like that. And then you move on to the next book and it's like, oh, now it's German slang. <laughs> and it's like The Wailing Woman was satisfying because it was that book was kind of a love letter to Sydney in a way, a place that I have so many mixed feelings about because it's a city that really fucking hates the arts and hates creatives and hates ease. They're like, oh, you want to drive on our roads? Ew. Who would want to be able to get from one place to the other easily and cheaply? Sounds dumb. All right. But there are so many wonderful little things about it as well. So that book as much as like getting to tell the story of Sadie and Tex was really great and creatively really great because each of the books is a kind of a different structure. Like who's afraid and all of the Tommy Grayson stories are first person and what you call a death is third person. And then wailing woman is um, a chapter in Texas perspective and a chapter in Sadie's it came from the deep as third person. And the Rose daughter is uh, like my editor called it the most, my most ambitious book yet. (laughs) I'm like that can only go either really well or really badly, but each (laughs) chapter is a chapter in the past and a chapter in the present. And Ooh. that's like that, you know, because the character is she's somebody a really who is old character. Right? Old. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's 140. Something. 40. Sorry. I just yeah. read it. So I'm like 140. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That works. Yeah. Yeah. 140. Yeah. So, you know, there's more story to tell there. Yeah. And um, I'm still at that point when you finish a book where you're still kind of living in it, which I really love. Mm. I love when you're like living in the book's world. Um, but it, it got me thinking that, I mean, I've always loved magical realism, which I feel like this almost was, um, obviously there's a lot more supernatural in this than maybe classic magical realism novels would have, but yeah, the definitions are loose. It's like, very loose. I, yeah. I've been on panels where they're like how to write magical realism. And then I've been on, on others where it's like how to write horror and how to write sci-fi and how to write whatever I'm just like uh, I just let other people define it wherever they put me or tell me I'm like yeah all right whatever yeah I like that you just seem to be following your interests and not really trying to um you know you're cutting your own cloth basically um but what I really I don't know what that means but what I really like (laughs) (laughs) it sounded so biblical when you said it I was like what I must be like with a scythe, like just fucking hacking away <laughs> some cloth. <laughs> I think I heard it in something I was watching the day, and I was like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. Um, uh, what was I gonna say? No, I I really like about like supernatural stuff is that it, especially like the Wailing Woman, um, where you're not spending a lot of time on world building because it's set in this world, but then you're like layering stuff on top of it, and you're you're drawing back to historical things and you're saying like what if um a lot of the people a lot of the um prisoners who were transported from ireland to australia back in the day what if they were banshees that were being driven out of ireland because the further away they get from their ancestral land the less powerful they become and there was the secret cabal of um supernatural police that wanted to control these powerful women and I think like I was reading it and I was thinking, you know, what I love about this kind of thing is the idea that one day I'll get to know the answers to all of like history's weird mysteries. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Um, but like, 
I like the idea that someone will sort of event someone with a higher uh, security clearance, you know, like one of these uh, like, like texts, this sort of character will come along and they'll be like, take oh, you through St. James station and be like, here's yeah. all the answers you're looking for. And they they happen to have the book that has all the answers about like, you know, <laughs> your family's history or like why you are this way. And I, I, I was thinking about how it's, it's um, for me, it's ultimately about, the idea that I could one day know the truth. And I was wondering, Marie Liz, what truth yes. are you seeking? What are you seeking? Fucking good question, mate. Look, as I'm working through with my therapist <laughs> at the moment, <laughs> shout out, Susan. Um, <laughs> we were Fucking sort of having good this conversation. Susan. Susan, truly, what a game changer. What a like absolutely rad bitch. But we were sort of having this conversation of, closure being like a fake thing you know what I mean like it being something that isn't really real if that makes sense and for me as somebody who's like I grew up with having a lot of questions about my family and questions about you know my cultural identity and questions about biology and questions just about everything I'm like naturally a really like nosy person and that's why accidentally falling into journalism worked out really well for me because I had um, always grown up with a lot of questions. I think one of the things that therapy really helped me with was sort of settling and maybe it's therapy, but maybe it's also age, but sort of settling on this idea that, and I think maybe this is the same for you and maybe why this interests me or maybe it's why it's kind of like pornographic in some way is I don't think there are, moments where you get all the answers. I don't think there ever is, whether it's a character or an object or a vessel or a circumstance that happens or comes along or is given to you. I don't think you ever have the answers and you're never going to get all of them to your satisfaction, I should say. And accepting that has been a really long and windy and unconventional and tough journey for me. I mean, I think there was a point, actually there was a point when I was in my late teens, my mate Bridie and I were like, fuck yeah, we're going to like do all this shit. And we started digging into records and, you know, just doing all sorts of kind of stuff. And then it was like, I don't know if I actually want the answers to this. And I had to like sit down and think about it and examine it. And then, you know, it's different now. I'm like in my, you know, start of a new decade, right? You're in your early thirties and it's just like, you have to be content and happy with what you have now. And the past is the past. There are no answers there for me necessarily. I can't go back and change things or, you know, change the way other people behaved or things, choices that they made. You just have to be, this is what you've got is what's right here in the present moment. And I'm very, I have a lot of locomotive as a person. Like I'm very forward orientated. I'm always like trying to move forward and progress forward and think forward. And I don't know what changed a therapy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what changed about this year. It was therapy, suppose it was therapy, but it just came to that point where I think things clicked where I was just like, well, you just got to let that, let that shit go be, you know what you know, and you have to be happy with what you can be happy with. And sad with what you can be sad with and focus on the forward. And it was funny. My therapist, Susan, shout out, Susan. Um, <laughs> she said this, I was saying to her, I was like, you know, like I, I'm not from a, I got sent before going into therapy. I got sent to a 
therapist once before for work. And it was the first time I had covered a really bad fatal and a fatal is what you call like where there's been a death, you're covering a story that's involved a death and um, the body is still at the scene or there's still a crime scene in some form. And I think I'd covered maybe two or three fatals before this particular one, but this particular one was really bad. And, um, and like the photographer that I was with at the time who'd been on the job for like 30, 40 years, it was really bad for him. And I thought I was handling it. Okay. But the work were like, you both have to go and see, like mm-hmm. I'd had to throw out shoes because I had, um, I had like bodily fluids that were not my own on the shoes that had like soaked into it from the scene. So it was just one of those things where like work send you off and it was kind of this very like old school sort of macho journalism thing where it's like, you can't break, you can't show a sign of weakness. So I remember going to this therapist and they'd be like, how are you coping with their, you know, you're seeing their bodies, blah, 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 blah. And me just be sitting there and be like, nah, 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 nah. And I remember they had a really fucking dumb water feature that I just fucking hated. I just wanted to smash the cunt. And um, that was like my one experience with therapy and my family are not therapy people. And it's through friends of mine um, who've gone through stuff and like me thinking in the back of my head, like, that's not that bad. (laughs) Well, that's not that bad. That's not that bad. And being like, ah, yeah, bitch, it's not that bad. They need to go to therapy. Maybe you should too. (laughs) And also like me being somebody who invests so much time in my career and in my dreams and my passions and I take care of myself in lots of different ways and I needed to start investing in my mental health as well but anyway so doing therapy and I was saying to Susan I was like you know when I started this therapy shit I was like is this really doing anything (laughs) like I just kind of talk through shit and I'm like it's not like a list at the end of it of like things I need to achieve that like it was just my mind the way I quantify things it was just like is this really that necessary slash worth it like am I getting anything from this and then she was and then I said to her like my resolution was that yes I was because of this reason that reason this reason she goes you know you're the words woman and I was like oh that's dope writing that down I'm gonna steal that for later um and she's like words are who you are and that's how you communicate and that's a big part of not just what you do professionally but who you are personally and so when you talk through things and when you verbalize them it's you resolving them and you working through them and so as I'd been talking about this big sort of like revelation that I'd had that you know you can just be happy with what you have answers wise and that there might never be that moment where you just get it's I think that's a myth I think it's a fairy tale it's like for some people the fantasy is a romantic partner male female Mm. non-binary whatever that dream person is for you and however that looks and feels to you coming along and sweeping you off your feet and that's never been my dream fantasy my dream fantasy was always like the answers to all the questions about who you are, where you come from, why you are the way you are. And that's examined a lot through my work in a way in a fantasy element. Like a lot of times the fantasy elements, things that are fantastical to me might not be the things that are fantastical to other people. They'll point to Shazza and Dazza, wombat shapeshifters, or they'll point to (laughs) giant spider people. (laughs) Like the react. I didn't need to know (laughs) those were things. So thank you for that. Uh you're welcome you're welcome from tradi- from Japanese folklore well I mean to be fair all of the supernatural creatures in my books 
I always try and pick monsters that pop up in lots of different cultures because there's something really nice about being able to say, well, every culture has werewolf myths or every culture has giant spider myths for some reason. I don't know what it is. Uh, every culture has selkie myths or every culture has banshee myths or, you know, insert other monster archetype here because yeah. it's a great way to sort of explain away something that's always been there, but we haven't had the words or the understanding to, to be able to use it and talk about it. Like they say in Thor, you know, like what you think of, is science is magic and what they thought of as magic as science where I'm from they're one and the same I always loved that idea of being able to condense a really complex thing that oftentimes maybe someone like J.R.R. Tolkien would take several books to explain or several (laughs) chapters to explain and just condensing it into a sentence aspirational aspirational and cutthroat storytelling um <laughs> such so a I screenwriter like you're like oh, I don't need four books I want it in one uh, sentence <laughs> you know the person who came up with that too is like someone who works with the Wachowskis a lot and they famously Lana and Lily like are can like dense ideas they're the dense idea people that's their yeah. vibe you know everything of theirs is dense in it's so high concept yeah so high concept and like you just plunge deeper and deeper and deeper all the time I I remember a friend a friend tried to explain sensate to me when that was on and I was like so what (laughs) but it's a good show I was just like you can't how do you explain that (laughs) mental polyamory I guess (laughs) oh that's pretty (laughs) good actually yeah you kind of nailed it (laughs) damn it yeah, too too many years of coming up with elevator pitches for things. Everybody <laughs> wants you to be able to explain whatever it is you're trying to sell them in one sentence. And so you have to become really good or at least proficient at being able to like boil your idea down to a sentence max. If, and it's fucking if, hard. If the entertainment industry wants elevator pitches so badly, could they make all of their buildings accessible? wild concept guys I had to I had to go to this office for a company that show remain nameless um (laughs) not for not for a bad reason just because like I don't want to like tip my hat and get in trouble and you know whatever anyway so (laughs) I had to go to this office for this company and I was just like oh my god (laughs) go to the office of this company and there's a lot of places like everybody knows where the Warner's lot is in LA and the Disney lot and Marvel's on the Disney lot and they're in the building that has all the little dwarfs holding up the building and are like really kind of dystopian fucking uh like outward it's fucking terrifying you look at it and the roof is literally being held up by all the seven dwarfs and this big like anyway like google it look it up Disney lot Burbank you'll know what I'm talking about anyway (laughs) lots of places and they're famous like Paramount lot Sony all that kind of stuff because there's history there and whatever and this particular company which are very famous and very old famously don't have their address known like people who work for them know and people who take meetings there know but I was having my first meeting there and they're like we'll let you know the address closer to the time and I was like what 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 do you mean let me know the address closer to the time and they're like oh we can't just like give out the address and I was like what the fuck so anyway I, they eventually like give me the address and there was like all this protocol that you have to go through to get into the building and it's like not advertised a where they are but b when you get there it's just a fucking building and there's <laughs> no numbers on the floors and no um 
like names on the floors because they've had so many intensely dedicated people to their product and their brand come there and do really intense things that they re-upped their um their landscaping I guess and their architecture in a certain way that a you can't find the building b if you find the building you don't know where the entry is c if you get into the building which you have to get like buzzed in like four or five different ways you don't know what floor you're going to because nothing's like numbered (laughs) or labeled (laughs) oh wow so crazy intense like it's it's truly like it was such a stressful experience I was so nervous and stressed about going there anyway and I was just like felt like at any moment I was about to get like spear tackled or dragged out of the building and I have tattoos from this company like on my body so I was like trying to hide those so I didn't look too like intense and I had Tim Tams in my bag to be like the ultimate bribe you know it's pretty amazing Australian accent will open a lot of doors for you and mine is kind of like half Kiwi half Aussie so it's like oh what's that but I always have like Tim Tams just in my bag just in case (laughs) because you can really like you can bribe your way into a lot of places with Tim Tams and it was just like one of those experiences was like this is fucking insane building like I don't even know I, I couldn't even imagine what their accessibility protocol is like they yeah. probably have a, a whole separate situation going on there where they're like, we want to make this as accessible to you as possible. But just so you know, you'll pass through a laser and then you'll also go up a spiral elevator, whatever that means to you. And then you'll also pass through this like glass radar and like blah, blah, blah. It was just absolutely wild shit. Wild wow. shit. Maria, I could talk to you forever. Uh, we did. We sort of did. <laughs> um, this went way over time, but I'm thrilled about it. Um, thank you so much for coming on Just a Spoonful. It's been a long time coming and I'm just so happy that you were able to do it. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm like such a big fan of yours and incredibly proud of you and bringing the show back and, you know, don't do wavy emotional hand gestures for people <laughs> who can't see. <laughs> no, seriously, it's honestly, it's been so great. And I think being able to talk about stuff like disability and living with chronic illness and just shit that people don't talk about on a mainstream platform is going to be incredibly important. It is incredibly important, but I just think that the long-term ramifications of people getting able, to, being able to listen to folks just like them is going to be super crucial. Thank you to Maria Lewis, one of the busiest, most hardworking people in Australia, probably and New Zealand, I'm going to say, uh, for taking time out of her packed schedule to chat to me. It was a great time. Uh, Maria's seventh novel, The Rose Daughter, comes out, sorry, it came out, it came out in Australia and New Zealand in April, so you can read it now, and as of today, the book is available internationally too. It's book seven in the Supernatural Sisters series, which includes Who's Afraid?, Who's Afraid too? Who's Afraid Still? Who's Still Afraid? Get it right, Caitlin. And The Witch Who Courted Death and The Wailing Woman. And don't forget that when you borrow a book from the library, the author gets some income from that. Uh, so if you can't afford to be buying new books right now, borrowing from the library is still a good thing for the author uh, if you want to support the author. And if you're in lockdown like I am here in Melbourne, um, a lot of local libraries are doing click and collect so you don't have to miss out. 
You can find Maria on Twitter as at MovieMaz and on Instagram as Maria underscore 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 Lewis. Uh, she posts great book content on her Instagram stories and on Twitter she live tweets movies for Acme on her Twitter. Uh, if you don't already follow her, I don't know why you don't, but uh, get on it. I did, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, have to cut quite a bit of our conversation out to sort of get it down to a manageable time because there were lots of tangents. Uh, but I have saved a little bonus snippet for my Patreon subscribers. I'll be posting it to my Patreon uh, next week if you want a little bit more of me and Maria. Um, we go we go a little bit more into what it's like when illness and disability sort of becomes part of your personal brand, quote-unquote, as a writer, and how that can affect your career, and some advice that she got when she was a young journalist um, that she's not sure she should have followed. Um, and... Uh, I think that, that I'll just leave it there. Sign up to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Blythe by name, B-L-Y-T-H-E by name. Uh, yeah, takes as little as a dollar a month, um, or you can sign up for annual membership if you don't want to do the, the whole monthly thing, um, and get access to updates and stuff that I only post on there. And I'm going to be posting more rewards and special things as this podcast season goes on, so I think it's hopefully going to be worth it. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Blythe by Name. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you find a little spoonful of something to keep you going. <laughs>